Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. We've got mail. We need to do it in that sort of uh, static, covered CD-ROM type voice. I'm not doing the. I'm not doing the audio mixing on that. <laughs> it's easy. Just add a little effect. Be bong, be bong. Anyway, we've got mail. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other places as well. Some people call me Rockmeister McCool. And as well they should. The, the spelling is still up for debate on Rockmeister McCool. I think it's straightforward, but listen, go nuts. It's, it's your world. We only live in it. And this is your podcast. We only host it. Uh, this is the podcast where we dedicate the entire time to your Letters, your emails. You send us emails, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We read them. We respond to your criticism. We answer your questions. We recommend your movies. We take on weird assignments in mid-podcasts and just derail everything. <laughs> Whatever you want us to do, this is your time. And we try to get to as many as we can. There's always mm. something we miss, and we apologize for that. But let's just get started because we want to make the most of our time. And boy, howdy, do we have a lot of emails. Oh, do we ever. Here's a letter from Hayden. One of our many Haydens. One of our Haydens. We have at least three Haydens. Uh, hello. 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 Uh, as a horror fan, Ooh. I have opinions that rarely uh, that I can rarely shake because it almost feels wrong. Mm. Ooh, wrong opinions. Ooh. My favorite kind. <laughs> uh, I don't think John Carpenter's Halloween holds up. Ooh, that is that Blas- is a hot take. Blasphemy, sir. Blasphemy. Well, let's hear what we got. Let's do yeah, this. Let's, let's take this. I've, let's, I've tried, let's consider it. Yeah, I've tried to love it. I have seen the film four times, and every time I walk away, disappointed. I can't help in thinking other films have taken the formula and done it better. Hmm. Nowadays, Halloween comes across as very boilerplate compared to other classics like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre hmm. or The Exorcist, which contain way more complexities to unpack. If I couldn't get more blasphemous, I'll say it. I find Halloween 2018 far more interesting and scarier. Is it perfect? Mm. No, but I appreciate its attempts into exploring the connectivity of trauma. Even as a pure stylistic exercise, I much prefer the fog. Uh, the aspects that hold up the most is the cinematography and the Car- and Carpenter's score, but nobody can convince me the dialogue isn't on the same level of w- the worst Friday the 13th. For those that disagree, I would suggest taking another look at Halloween, but it is basically viewed by everyone in October, and I'm still in the minority. If I was reviewing it for Critically Acclaimed, I would give it a medium C. Maybe on the 10th viewing, I'll get it. Um, <laughs> look, no one's required to like any films. No matter how much other people say it's a classic, mm-hmm. if it just doesn't do it, especially if you gave it more than one shot. Mm-hmm. If it's considered a classic and you don't dig it, I usually say read a couple reviews, see maybe if you're missing something, because it's possible you are. Mm-hmm. Maybe give it one more try, and if after that you still don't dig it, fine. Mm-hmm. Like, you've done all you can possibly do. You've done more than your fair amount of diligence. Some movies get better as you get older, like I, and have more experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, some movies just don't hit you unless you've had a particular experience. For example, Rosemary's Baby is a movie I point to a lot. I saw it when I was a teenager. I was the youngest person in my family. I was never around people who were pregnant. And then when I was an adult, I revisited it after knowing some people personally who were pregnant, and I saw just how wrong that pregnancy was going, Uh and it finally clicked. Right, right, And it suddenly became really scary. The Exorcist was another example of that, where I saw it when I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. and that movie isn't... I mean, it's violent and horrifying, but only in little short bursts. Mm -hmm. The majority of the It's a really quiet, slow-moving movie. The majority of the horror comes from the horror that maybe there's more out there to the world than secular thought might have you believe mm. and that's something that I hadn't really engaged with as a teenager so as an adult I appreciate it more mm. when it comes to Halloween 
I mean, there's actually a lot of fair factors here. Halloween didn't necessarily start the slasher genre. That started with arguably Black Christmas, uh, Home for the Holiday, Psycho, mm. Peeping Tom, uh, a lot of several, uh, a lot of giallos. Uh, but Halloween codified it. Hmm. And a lot of other people took that formula and ran with it. And it's entirely possible that, yeah, you've seen so many riffs on it, the original just doesn't have the same bunch anymore. Hmm. That's very fair. But I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate how significant it was, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, I I, uh, I encountered something similar with the movie Beverly Hills Cop. Not, oh, yeah. Not considered a huge classic like Halloween is, and by any similar measure. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it was a huge hit at the time. It was considered really, really revolutionary. Mm -hmm. uh, it helped really make Eddie Murphy's yeah, career. Eddie Murphy became a huge star because of it. And this mm -hmm. idea of this wisecracking cop from out of town was so novel at the time. It came out in, what, like, 83? 83, 84. Uh, that... It kind of invented a new genre, this wisecracking cop that led mm. to this entire explosion of very similar films that followed it. I feel like I saw all of the films that it inspired first mm. and kind of did better, like mm -hmm. f figured out a way to tell more interesting stories with those types of characters. Mm -hmm. I think and it's so fair I go to say Beverly to, Hills Cop is a very sloppy film from a storytelling Absolutely. It's the, the just story... a loose, it's a loose mm. framework for which Eddie Murphy gets a lot of opportunities to riff. Yeah, and I, and I had seen a lot of Eddie Murphy films following that. Like I saw, you know, Coming to America and Trading Places and all of these other films that sort of he was allowed to be more him, like not more himself, but you know, just sort of be do more Eddie Murphy within uh, an actual movie. And uh, yeah, I went back to watch uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and I didn't get it. I didn't really understand. I didn't enjoy be watching Beverly Hills Cop as much as I might have if I had seen it earlier. So yeah, that's probably what's happening with you and Halloween. Uh, it's certainly um, a factor. Yeah, Halloween. Yeah. I can say this: um, is the dialogue great? No, this is not a film known for its like scintillating script. Yeah, it's not are Preston the, yeah. Sturges. It's not mm. Billy Wilder. Are the are the scenarios unique? Kind of. Uh, although, if you just sort of take the setting as just this kind of neighborhood in Haddonfield, Illinois, which is actually a neighborhood in Beverly Hills. Uh, Pasadena. Or is Pasadena? South was it Pasadena. Pasadena. South okay. Pasadena. Yeah. So, like on Genesee, I think they filmed around there. Oh, around right? there, I think, yeah. But yeah, uh, it, it's not a, like visually a very interesting place for all of these place, things like horrors to go down. It just it was looks supposed like to a be suburb. everywhere, yeah. USA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that might be putting off because you're used to seeing that formula in more interesting locales. Mm -hmm. Well, you look uh, at the way you look at the way that you mentioned mm. that uh, Hayden. You mentioned that the new Halloween does it for you. I think that's more um, stylishly filmed in like more of an aggressive way, mm. um, and I think it is really engaging with certain ideas of horror and sort of family drama mm. that I think Halloween isn't really about. Halloween, John well, Carpenter's original Halloween. Uh -huh. A lot of people think it's only a kill count. I don't think that's true at all. I think it is about much like when we look at The Exorcist as what happens when secular thought fails you and, and mm. people from a modern era have to fall back on religion in order to confront and potentially solve their problems. Halloween is about the failure of psychology to explain evil. Yeah. The idea which, of explaining which science of, fails. What if there is just pure evil? Mm, what do we do? The answer is, a, is we do whatever of, we can. Yeah, it's, it's a, which is a bit of a revolutionary thing to say in the late 70s, because if you look at the TV movies at the time, mm -hmm. psychologists were the saviors. Mostly. There was always some kind of like, we're having a divorce drama, or a child is acting out. There's some, some kind of big real-life psychological problem, and mm -hmm. a shrink would be called in. And, you know, pop psychology was kind of new at the time. Oh, yeah, the idea the of like... That, how, that a yeah. shrink can come well, in 
and explain your own mind to you was very novel, and Halloween was directly countering that. It was very cynical about psychology. Yeah, ther- therapy was becoming way more publicly acceptable at the time, mm. and as a result, people were looking to therapists the way some people would look to their priest. Yeah. yeah. As someone who you could ha- have guidance and be comforted by, and what if psychology is represented by Dr. Loomis, who becomes convinced that his patient cannot be cured, isn't even human, but mm. is a soulless murdering monster. What happens when your psychologist believes that? <laughs> it's pretty frightening. That's the thing that I think is yeah. most scary about it. Everything mm. else is just basically what if there was a serial killer and it's relatively plausible. Um, yeah, I do believe but, it, is, it is elegantly crafted. It's well, certainly the Panaglide the photography is gorgeous. That, that's what I was going to get at. Was uh, the, the thing that re- that Halloween really has going for it is just craft. Yeah. Uh, John Carpenter. I don't know what exactly it is he does about his camera placement or his editing or whatever, but his craft always gets under my skin. Mm. He's able to just put the camera in the right spot. Yeah. He, he just has that instinct. He, he doesn't even, with a couple of exceptions, like mm. the opening shot of Halloween is of course this, this incredible big, one yeah, this Panaglide yeah. thing. Yeah. But for the most part, his his films don't call attention to the visuals. They're just well shot, damn it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really hard to do is to have everything be really kind of meticulous and well crafted without calling it... Like, Hitchcock would call attention to how clever he was visually all the time. Oh, yeah. And, shooting up through, like, glass coffee And he and would stuff, get away but... with it because it was awesome, but, like... You're sometimes that you're aware that you're watching a movie. John Carpenter made these incredibly weird genre films, and yet you just felt like you were there, and that's mm. one of the reasons why they felt so real and, and yeah, effective. Even, even if you watch his uh, last film, The Ward, it's like oh, no, yeah, nobody, that's a good movie. nobody saw The Ward, but yeah, you that's far from his worst. You, you watch it and you start to notice, yeah, he's actually putting the camera in places that modern filmmakers wouldn't. He's a little bit more concerned with seeing everything, yeah. and it's yeah, it's difficult to really pin down, but I think. That is kind of what Halloween has always touted as its greatest strength. Yeah. Is just the director's pure craftsmanship. It's slick like a razor. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, you watch something. You say that the dialogue and the scenarios are, are not as good as sort of like a Friday the Thirteenth sequel. Some of those Friday the Thirteenth sequels are shot like crap. Sure. They're, they're just shooting on the fly. They're yeah. not. Some shots aren't even lit very well. They're yeah. they're just made with a certain kind of bland efficiency that uh, Halloween sort of doesn't have it, it has a it, I mean it's it's efficient but it's not blandly so it's really kind of so. but on the other hand rigorously it, efficient again though if Halloween was yeah. a 1970s film uh, and movies from prior generations often have different storytelling aesthetics mm-hmm. in their visuals in their writing in their acting that eventually, either fall out of favor or just don't feel natural to future generations. That doesn't make them bad. Mm. Sometimes it just means you should immerse yourself in films of the era and you'll start to sort of fall into that rhythm yourself and it becomes sort of a natural thing. But um, I I, I get it. I do. I I disagree. I think I love Halloween. Halloween came out before I was born. Mm. Uh, So it's a film that I also sort of discovered when I was probably about 10. If I recall, it was an August released. I don't remember. Wasn't, I don't. I actually I wasn't don't know the actual, actual uh, release date of. Regardless, it came out in 1978. Yeah, and um, yeah, four mm. years before I was born, so it was already kind of an old movie when I saw it. It wasn't old, old, mm. 
But it, it, it was on TV a lot when I was yeah. a kid. But yeah. I remember the first time I actually sat down with it, I rented it. Hmm. And it was Halloween, and my parents were already in bed, and I had turned off all the lights, hmm. and I put in the tape, and by the time the credits were over, the lights were, were on. <laughs> because just that slow zoom into that pumpkin and that creepy music was enough, hmm. and I was really freaked out, and I love that movie. But to each their own. Mm. That sounds like if you watched it four times, you've given it a fair shake. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to watch it again. That's a lot. Yeah, we're talking about how much we like uh, Halloween, but yeah, to, to repeat what I, I started with, uh, you're not required to like anything. Uh, if if you see it and you're just simply not impressed, mm-hmm. and your opinion is unpopular, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you gave it more than one shot afterwards, you've done more than your fair share of work. There is this uh, kind of pervasive con- uh, like idea permeating <laughs> through the culture right now that there is a Let's say it's like 100 title film canon mm. that all like young people ought to know and enjoy. Yeah, and and you can list off the Star Wars films, your RoboCops, your Blade Runners, Citizen Kane. Yeah, and, and also yeah, some classics. Arabia. But yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there's there's a certain like pop culture canon that everybody is expected to have the same attitude about. Oh, you meant specifically pop culture, especially oh, especially the okay. pop, not not yeah. like not like the AFI canon. I'm yeah, talking yeah, about, okay. Yeah. I'm talking about like the geek canon. I misunderstood you. Yeah, the and. You're seen as somehow less than or uh, a little bit backward if you have a contrary opinion on, like, four or more of these 100 films. Right. Uh, I know this because I run into this a lot. Yeah. There's There's a lot of these pop films that I don't really care for. I'm not a Blade Runner guy. I say it a lot. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of Blade Runner. Uh, we, we, this yeah. is one of the films we disagree on the most. The I most. I love Blade Runner. Yeah, right? I, I just doesn't like it at don't all. like Blade Runner. I think it's a boring-ass movie. I, I think respect that. I think you're wrong, but fair. It's, it's concepts are dull. Um, Aww. Uh, you and I are not Star Wars people. Like we watch them, we enjoy I, them, but I, we're not like deep dive Star Wars fans. Not particularly. Mm. Like I, I like the ones that I like, and I dislike the ones that I don't, and I don't mm. feel the need to defend the ones that I don't like, mm. or even really decry the ones that I don't. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah, they're yeah. movies. They're movies. They're they're enjoyable movies. Yeah. But so yeah, you're you're probably. It's not like Step Up, where of course we'll defend them. To death. <laughs> well, those are movies we're a little bit passionate about. Yeah. Also, the Step Up movies aren't part of that canon. You see. Yeah. Well, that's true. Anyway, yeah, um, try going against like Predator or something yeah. and then you'll see what happens. But in any case, this is it's perfectly okay at mm. least with us to say you, you you don't like a movie. We may tell you why we like it. We just did. Mm. Uh, but by all means, yeah. if it doesn't do it for you, kudos, good luck. You mentioned other really good movies, so I, I think you have good taste. Mm. Just don't like Halloween? Fair. It's fine. I can live with it's that. Fine. If, right. if you can articulate why intelligently, yeah. Then That's people fine. will get off your back pretty fast. They should anyway. Yeah. I mean, some well, there's so, always there's always a jerk. But moving well, I mean, on, yeah. If, if you're on film Twitter, anyway, me, here's here's a letter from Michael, Hi, uh, Michael, and this is on a similar topic actually. Uh, hello, gentle gentlemen. Uh, hope all is well and life is grand and exciting. Oh, grand and little, exciting. A little too exciting. I could use, <laughs> I could use a rest. Uh, I've been been fighting spies all morning. Uh, I just have a quick question for you too. What are some movies that you have watched on later in life that you didn't think live up to the height and proceed and proceeded around that proceed proceeded around them not necessarily making them bad movies but you watched them and thought to yourself eh that was fine mm. so it's exactly the same topic uh, I saw Michael says Star Wars the original trilogy when I was 18 right before The Force Awakens came out right. upon completion I thought to myself that they were just fine other movies that fall into that category for me are at, le- at least are The Godfather oh. Taxi Driver mm. Spirited Away Lord of the Rings I'm going to stop here before someone strangles me through yeah. the internet those are some bold uh, yeah. those are some bold films not I, to like. I don't, I don't those think these are bad flakes. films, but I think that fandom and the internet has, has, as a whole has built these movies up so 
high for me that when I finally saw them, they didn't quite reach the height they were set to in my head. Also, I have a side question for Bibbs and Whitney, too. If this applies to you, I heard you, Bibbs, ah. talk about Overwatch a lot, and I was wondering what games you're playing now or what games you recently completed or were playing. Thanks for the great content, as always. Until my next gentle gentleman, Michael. Michael, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. To answer your second question uh, first, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have time for much besides Overwatch. One of the <laughs> reasons why I like Overwatch is that it's easy to sort of pick it up and put it down. It's not like uh-huh. a narrative linear game. I go in, I play some matches, usually with uh, my wife and partner, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone asks, uh, or if anyone is curious, I'm a Junkrat main, uh, but I'm also, I also play a lot of uh, Sigma and uh, uh, May lately for whatever reason. Anyway, but... Uh, I don't have time to play video games the way I used mm. to because I'm so immersed in movies and they take up so much of my time. Yeah, I used yeah. to be a very avid gamer. I used to even do some work in the video game industry. I worked in quality assurance on some games from Activision. You were uh, one of the Guitar Hero guys, right? I worked on Guitar Hero for many, 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 many months. Mm. I worked on Guitar Hero Van Halen. Okay. Uh, and I got really good at Guitar Hero Van Halen, which <laughs> is not easy to do. Uh, but, um, but in any case, um, regarding movies that get built up a lot and this happens with any sort of classic film mm. where you hear you have to watch it you hear you have to watch it and then you watch it and you go eh. mm. um for me i mean there are examples of this i've mentioned a few already mm. the exorcist got built up a lot when i was young but i didn't fully appreciate uh, it until uh, i was older i remember when they re-released it in i think it was 2000 uh they did, yeah the version you've never seen before and they kind of recut it a little bit mostly they just sli- added the spider walk uh, back and, in, and, yeah. and made it made it slightly worse because there's a bad ending and they've put in like these scary face flashes throughout for no reason whatsoever some of those were always in there uh, no, 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 no. There was, not, there not was subliminal stuff. There was some, some subliminal stuff, but they like would edit in scary faces, like and like white spaces behind the actors, just in random scenes. Oh, that all I don't that all that stuff. Oh, was new. that I don't remember. Yeah, That's, yeah. I don't like kind of care for that. But all right, um, not like during the exorcism scenes. Yeah, th- those like flashes where it gets really intense. Those were always in there. Weird. But, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I remember when that came out, and so many of my friends who went at the time were like in their late teens, early twenties. We're just not having it. They mm. thought it was really boring. It was the bore- most boring thing I've ever seen because yeah. I th- this was the first time they saw it. They heard it's the scariest movie of all time. They're expecting like something like Friday the 13th with like this huge kill count and there's all this mayhem and it's actually a really slow contemplative movie. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that I think is part of it. Uh, same thing happened with a lot of same friends around the same age with 2001 The Space Odyssey. Mm. It's like, this is a great movie about sort of infinity in the cosmos, but you watch it when you're 19 and you're expecting Star Wars, you're going to be bored out of your mind. A lot of it, I think a big job mm. of film critics, especially for, I think for new movies, it's a film critic's job, at least part of it, to cut through the marketing and promotion and prepare you for the movie you're going to get. Exactly. Yeah. When it's when you're talking about an older movie, I think, especially like the older you get, like the further back, mm-hmm. um, you have to ex- you have to realize that there's someone listening to you, or someone reading your work, mm-hmm. who has never heard of this movie or will never have seen it before, and will remember what you said when yeah. they do. When you're talking about an older movie, especially the older back you go, it is incredibly vital to put a film in its historical context. Yeah, yeah. Star Wars, the original Star Wars, 1977, 77, right? Mm-hmm. A great movie. I, I love the original Star Wars. I think it's an excellently made film. Um, 
when you look at all of the films that borrowed from it, either directly in terms of genre or borrowed in the way that it used sound effects, which was very innovative at the time, or uh, the John Williams bombastic score, which was not something that was super common in genre fiction at the time and really helped sell the movie as bigger than it was. These are all things that became commonplace. Hmm. When you introduce a film like Star Wars as someone who has never seen Star Wars before, especially if they're older and not like approaching it with a sense of childlike wonder, mm. uh, it's really important to remind people, here's what sci-fi films were like before Star Wars. <laughs> here's what action films were like uh-huh. before Star Wars. It really behooves you to think about just how revolutionary the film was. And this can go for everything from movies that tackle serious social issues in a way that now we might cringe, Mm -hmm. but at the time weren't being discussed at all in some cases, and you gotta say to yourself, we can cringe now, we can say it's maudlin, but this was daring at the time, and so we want to put on not nostalgia goggles, history goggles, and actually think about I would love, I would love to record an introduction for every movie ever made just to do that <laughs> just to tell you here's where they acted because it's just oh. like when you're watching Turner Classic Movies that was really valuable for me growing up mm. just hearing Robert Osborne or Ben Mankiewicz or whoever uh, talk about the important thing to remember while you're watching this movie where it fits into the filmography of the people involved where it fits into the history fascinating trivia things to look out for as you're watching it because it wasn't designed to be consumed in 2019, in a future the filmmakers couldn't even contemplate. Mm. That doesn't mean all old movies are good. I watched, in fact, actually, we just did uh, an episode of The Iron List, mm. um, in which I mentioned like my, one of my picks for the best Christmas movies ever was Miracle on 34th Street. After doing that, I rewatched Miracle on 34th Street again, mm. and I actually thought to myself, actually, there are things in this that don't hold up to me. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that in the Cancel Too Soon Monthly movie over on our Patreon. Okay. Um, and I'm wondering now if maybe I would have put it on that list if I had rewatched it like the day before we shot it, as opposed mm. to like last year. Okay. So, like, there's things that sometimes you grow, sometimes mm. the movies fail, but in any case, there's a lot to consider when we talk about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes they're just movies I don't like. <laughs> I don't like Chinatown. All right, I don't like it. I does it doesn't. I get the graft. It just yeah. for whatever reason never grabs well, me. Uh, this idea that there's a, a, a film that is universally appealing is a fallacy. Yeah. Um, the, the something that is sort of like a big crowd pleaser. Yeah, it pleases a crowd. A crowd is not everyone. And as somebody who's always had a like strange outray tastes and who's drawn to certain weird movies, while my friends were busy watching you know Aliens for the one hundredth time, I'm busy watching Sneakers at home. Oh, you know, because because that one holds up. But Sneaker, mm, this politics don't. But uh, for the most part, well, the, the, it's the always film, time politically. Yeah, I mean, the, like the filmmaking was... does. Yeah, the, the politics like dated the next year. But um, well, yeah, it, it takes place in this very limited time. It takes place between that, the fall of the fall of the fall of Russia, but before, like the fall of the Soviet Union, but before. Or like the Soviet the in- Union became the independent of- states kind of became their own nations again. Right, but if you look at it as a period piece, it's perfect. I suppose so. Yeah, but, although it was just the present at the time. No, I know, but like it uh, only exists in that time. Yeah, all of my friends are busy watching these action films like Predator. I'm watching Gremlins 2 over and over. Not the first Gremlins either. I've seen Gremlins 2 like several dozen (laughs) times. I've seen the first Gremlins maybe twice. 
Uh, you know, Back to the Future 2 as well. I, I watched that one a bunch because yeah. that takes place in the future. That was more exciting to me. That future was great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that future. That was a fun future. The, those hoverboards were real, by the way. Oh, yeah. They actually made them, but they had to take them off the markets because some kid used it and they, they, broke their, they broke their neck and they died. That so was they the whisper heard most often on the playground, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That, that was, was a real point. rumor, by the way. Oh, of course. That, well, yeah, a real rumor. The, a real rumor. <laughs> well, I mean, like, that's not something I'm making up right now. At the time, yeah. we all said that hoverboards were real things, but Mattel had to take them off the market uh-huh. because they were too dangerous. Well, we believed it. We wanted to believe it because yeah. it looked cool. Because we wanted a hoverboard. <laughs> Who wouldn't want a hoverboard? <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, just because your taste doesn't align with popular taste doesn't mean you're deficient in any sort of way. Not at all. It just means you have your taste. And sometimes um, that will make it difficult yeah. for you to have a conversation with people who just, when they talk about them, so they love it, they mm-hmm. assume you share that. Yeah. That can suck sometimes. Oh, and sometimes I would, you have, yeah, to have a conversation would, with them. That sounds like you're trying to like, Yuck their yum. Mm. Try, yeah. Sounds like you're trying to ruin it. Like, yeah, I don't like them. that one either. Yeah. Let's I remember uh, I feeling that way going to the collider offices where they were having this <laughs> uh, conversation about how great Rogue One was. And I, I hate Rogue One. I like yeah. really loathe the movie. It's like, what'd you, and they actually asked me directly, what'd you think of Ro- Rogue One? I just said outwardly, I loathe that film. You what? I, I loathe it. I think it's awful. <laughs> what do you hate about it? Well, uh, how, how much time do we have? Yeah. And and yeah, they just sort of backed away and stopped talking to me after that. It was yeah. really awkward. It's one of the things I love about you, man. You don't, you you you, you don't uh, you, you don't pretend you're anyone you're not. Yeah, I know sometimes yeah. it's easier to just back out of a conversation, and that's fine. I wouldn't mm. judge anybody. Mm. But Whitney is just like, no, I have my opinion. I'm just going to tell you. Mm. You asked. <laughs> they, and it wasn't yeah, I wasn't trying to yuck their yum. They asked. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, uh, here, I, I think the answer is that one. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Linda. Hello, Linda. Hi, Linda. Uh, in discussing in then this is a more recent letter. So uh, in discuss your discussion about subtitles versus dubbing, ah. uh, which we had in the last letters episode. I think it was last um, week, yeah. Something very important to me and to a lot of other people was not brought up and. And that is hearing loss. Oh, good point. Uh, I still have enough hearing that I can usually follow a movie in a theater, but at home where neighbors must be con- considered, there is no way I can watch without captions or subtitles. And even in the theater, if people have accents or speak softly, forget it. Yeah. Uh, some theaters do offer open captioning, but it's kind of hard to find. It's like mm-hmm. inconvenient times of the day. So yeah. it's, it's not reliable. Uh, what got me excited enough to write to you is that the Criterion Collection, which you guys, along with many other critics, mention with affection, does not include caption in their releases. They have so many movies that I'd love to see, and none or almost none of them are captioned. Really? If you happen to know, know anyone involved with Criterion, give them a nudge, huh? I um, don't, but I should. I didn't know that was a thing. That sucks. All of my Criterion discs all have English, like the English no, but la- language films but have are, English subtitles. But they, we may be talking about the difference between English subtitles and English subtitles for the hearing impaired. Oh, that's true. Which will not just tell you what people are saying but actually what's going on in the audio track that's, oh that's true that that is incredibly mm. valuable and that is an excellent point and we don't talk nearly mm. enough about some of the issues with ableism that go on in the industry on, on just yeah. a consumer level yeah, yeah when you yeah. think about how many seats are unavailable in a movie theater uh for people who need yeah, are in wheelchairs who are in wheelchairs and mm. um sometimes people just take those seats anyway you yeah, know, because like, they're they're open and they're convenient. They're open and there's and their jerks. So, and, someone will um, someone will come in in a wheelchair and they'll you'll have to move because yeah. you're going to do the decent thing, right? Yeah, right. Uh, some some movie theaters yeah. and this is a lot of them are older movie theaters have seats that are so cramped that if you're not like 
what they consider to be a normal sized person, they're just spectacularly uncomfortable. I'm thinking yeah. of the El Capitan at the moment. The El Capitan it's, is built for built for people who have like very small legs, like one yeah. foot long legs. Yeah, they're it's, just not built for. If any you're not humans. if you're not super skinny, the El Capitan mm. has some really shitty seats in Los yeah. Angeles. I'm not gonna lie. Um, look up Kristen Lopez. She's yeah. a disabled film critic. She's a brilliant writer, and she's written uh, very eloquently on the point of being a disabled film critic mm -hmm. and how difficult it is for disabled film critics to get around because they're not considered. Yeah, like uh, she, she's written a lot about how mm -hmm. like various film festivals are not considering uh, how easy it is to even get from place to place or in a building. Yeah, yeah. Um, because they are because they they assume that able-bodied is the default. That's mm -hmm. not the case. Thank you for bringing this up. This yeah. is an excellent point. I did not. But, I was not aware the Criterion had so many issues with this. I don't know anyone there. If anyone does, I know. Ask them what they have. They have pretty good translations when it comes to their foreign language films. Sure. But, uh, I, you shouldn't have to watch just foreign language films, right? I don't. I, mean, I, I haven't mean, done a lot of research into myself because, mm. although I do sometimes put on subtitles, I sometimes my hearing isn't great, especially with background noise. Mm. So, like, if a lot of other stuff is going on in the room, I will put on subtitles. Mm. Uh, but um, I haven't done a lot of research into this, so I can't really contribute yeah. to that very much. But if that's a problem, that is a serious problem, yeah, I know, and we need to look into that. I know the Criterion Channel. Have, I think uh, all of the films I've encountered have subtitles. Okay. Uh, I, I actually watch a lot of films in kind of a noisy environment. Sometimes I can't see, yeah, uh, I can't hear the dialogue very clearly, so I'll put on the subtitles as just sort of a boost. Yeah, and uh, the the Criterion Channel has been best about that. But yeah, if you want to watch, like so many things, just don't have that option. All, all of YouTube doesn't have that option. Right. You can't turn on subtitles on YouTube. So yeah. Um, yeah, let's. I, I have a few email addresses. I can start writing around. We should, so we should, we should people within this. within the Criterion. Collection. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. Yeah. We really appreciate it. If anyone mm. knows anyone, please uh, spread the word and let's make sure that uh, mm. we know. We, we really got to stop assuming ableism. We got to assume yeah, that yeah. everybody's is. We, we need to take other people into consideration, and we're just not sometimes, uh -huh. and that sucks. So thank right. you for writing in. Uh, here is a letter from Topher. Hey! Topher the Elder. Hey, it's been a while. Hi, Topher. While. Hi, Topher the Elder. We, there's two Tophers. There's yeah. Topher the Elder and Topher... Uh, Topher the Younger. Topher the Younger. What do, what do they say in, in British boarding schools? I don't know. Uh, like, uh, I think it's like primus and secundus. Okay. Because they, they refer to themselves in British boarding schools by their last... You remember in uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips? I never saw Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Oh, tisk tisk. Um, I'll get to it eventually. Yeah. It, it takes place in a British boarding, boys' British boarding school. And whenever there's like a series of brothers, they have to say... Uh, prim I think it's Primus and Secundus. Oh, okay. But I think the Tophers are our father and son, so okay, that doesn't even apply here. <laughs> um, dear Bibbs and Whitney, hail to your cat overlords. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, everybody. I don't know where they are right now. They're scheming. They're mostly. hiding out. Yeah. Planning, plotting world domination. Uh -huh. uh, I recently watched the movie Curvature, a moody but ultimately trite time travel drama huh. that unfortunately had such tremendous causality problems that it was very unsatisfying. It got me to thinking about time travel movies and TV shows and how so many of them have such problems working out their causality problems. I've seen very few do it well and most just ignore the issue and just have fun. Yeah. In fact, in the, the last Avengers film, it's like they said, no, causality just isn't the thing in this universe. Except for Captain America. Yeah, when it, except when it is. Yeah, it's, it's so... 
they, that pissed me off. I was like, I was with it. I thought they were playing pretty fair, uh, and then I'm like, wait a minute, but no, that was, that's, that's not how that works. That's causality again. Uh, what do you, nah. Anyway, move, let's finish. It, it would have been so much more interesting if there actually were causality problems. And they uh, rewrote everything as they went along, and the, would have been fun. Know. That probably would have been given you another film you had to watch. Exactly. Well, I know, <laughs> but yeah, if they're gonna do time travel, uh, but. but I've seen very few do it well. Most ignore the, ignore the issue and have fun. Uh, the thing is, I personally believe that if time travel were possible, right. we'd inevitably discover that nothing could be changed because the future you came from is the product of the decisions you made when you were in the past. Of course, this theory doesn't make for very good drama, except in a couple of cases. The series Outlander mostly plays with this theory in mind, but they get their drama from the dual ideas of mm. A, history re- really didn't unfold in the way we think, Ooh. and B, history is the product of billions of people's of decisions, which is a mighty tide to counter. Yeah. It manages is to be very dramatic while allowing history to unfold rather naturally. This is the exception, though, for most stories. So, do you have movies or TV shows to recommend that do a particularly good job in handling causality well, rather than treating it all as a ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff? <laughs> Which is um, a, uh, best wishes. Keep up the good work, Tover White. One of my favorite mm. time travel movies doesn't get talked about a lot, which mm. is a shame because it's good and it made money. It was like it was popular, it just didn't make huge waves. Mm. Was uh, Tony Scott's Deja Vu? I didn't see Deja Vu. It's, it's underrated, I feel. Uh, if you haven't seen it, if you missed it, mm-hmm. uh, Denzel Washington plays a cop, um, and there's a terrorist bombing in, I want to say, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And he is brought in by a secret government uh, uh, team mm-hmm. that has somehow invented a kind of time travel. Hmm. Not the usual kind of time travel. What they're able to do is they have, they have created like a portal in time through which they can look at okay. exactly this far into the past. They mm. can see anywhere they want. Mm. But like for example, let's but say it, but it has to be exactly like well, let's, 7 days or something. Yeah, like yeah. let's let's say right now it is uh, <clears throat> what is it? It's Wednesday the 18th at 1:25 p.m. That's, that's when we record. record this, yeah. Um we could if we had this time portal, we could see and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but let's just say we could see into uh Tuesday the 10th at 4:14 a.m. Okay. But only, but then in the next minute we could see at 4.15 p.m. Oh, and right. so on and so forth. That's what we got. Okay, so you can look back exactly yeah. what, one week or whatever the, yeah. the actual finite amount of time. And they in enlist there. Denzel okay. Washington because he's a local cop. Mm-hmm. They can look into the event and try to see who did this, but uh-huh. they don't know where to look. Mm-hmm. So they bring him in because he knows all the suspects. He mm-hmm. knows the area. He's guiding them as to where to look backwards mm-hmm. in time. But what he discovers is that it actually might be possible to use this to change something. Mm. And one thing that they're doing is when they're looking through this time portal, mm. Denzel Washington picks up a laser pointer mm. and someone in the past sees it. Ah, uh, okay. So you can, like, shine light through the portal. Yeah, yeah. So he realizes that something can be done here. What they talk about is we could try to change things, but because time isn't just a piece of linear string there's so many different moving elements Mm -hmm. that every time you try to change something it inevitably goes back the way it was very very quickly okay um so time is a healing system i've heard certain science fiction the the metaphor they use is that time is a river with a current Mm-hmm. If you throw a pebble in there, you'll make a tiny little splash, and then everything will go back to normal. The only way to change time is to dig out a trench. You have to do something uh, so big mm. that it actually does make a permanent change, but it requires think, something huge to do that. I think that's the logic in uh, Doctor Who, which is a time travel show, Yeah, where they say that you can do whatever you like on a small scale, but there are certain like big events that you're not permitted to if, interfere with. I, I think they call them fixed points in history. They're yeah, just like, for example... Um, you couldn't go back and 
find use scientific technology to stop yeah. the explosion in Pompeii. Yeah, yeah. like that's gotta Vesu- happen. Vesuvius that's history is going changed. to erupt. That yeah. changed all of history. You change that, everything changes. You can't do it. But basically, yeah. everything you else can't is, do it. Why not the uh, rules? That's yeah. the rules. <laughs> yeah, basically. So, yeah. um. I, I like that theory. I like that you can mess around a little bit, but mm. basically you're you're safe. I also like movies that deal with causality very explicitly while also saying that there is no choice, mm. but all the choices that have been made were made by you. There's a really great one called Predestination. I love Predestination. Predestination is a really brilliant. It's one of the best sci-fi films <laughs> it's, of the it's, decade. It's really well thought out in terms yeah. of causality. Uh, Predestination uh, is a story... God, I'm trying to even think of how to frame it. Because it's a story that takes place over multiple timelines yeah. simultaneously, but it's a story about uh, a woman who gets basically stuck in a time loop and mm. how that ends up creating this very impossible paradox that mm. makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, it, it, the woman is played by Sarah Snook, who is great. So good. She's, she's, should have been Oscar nominated for that she movie. She really that should series. have been, and it stars Ethan Hawke as the agent who is... T- tailing her or maybe she's tailing him it's a little unclear he's, he's like because, a time agent yeah because it takes place over multiple uh time frames uh it, and it like sort of cuts back and forth between those time frames you don't actually know the chronology of events so it's yeah. kind of difficult to put it but that's done uh, intelli- uh intelligently and in- intentionally mm-hmm. um it's uh any other good it's, ones uh, i was trying to think primer is a really good one in terms of just <laughs> so the science it's really it's complicated so complicated it, but it is great it's one of the most cerebral films you'll see it's just sort of way 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 deep in its own brain as to like the way temporal mechanics operate and there's no yeah. flash to it either time travel is seen as this really kind of boring commonplace thing yeah um as for like the notion of causality, like you can't actually travel back in time because you are the result of all the decisions you made until now. How do you know that hasn't already happened? Mm. How do you know you're not already living in a causality loop? You're not. You don't. There's no start to a causality loop. It's a loop. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. No, no, we we think of time as being a straight line. That's the the poetic visual metaphor we most phys- most commonly go to. Generally speaking, that's how we experience. Yeah, like time. if you picture a line, and you know, like if you read left to right, if you read, uh, then the past is on the left, the present is in the middle, and the future is on the right, right? Yeah. And it's on a straight line. Well, the present, whatever yeah. is whatever word you're reading. Anyway. Yeah, and and a, a lot of science fiction shows like to say, well, if you go back in time, you're creating another timeline. So there's actually. Mm two entire realities that are existing simultaneously and they that's, show a little fork in the line that's and, the Marvel Comics way yeah. yeah they did that in Back to the Future there's a really great uh, kid science fiction novel I read when I was like 12 called Strange Attractors I don't know about that same thing okay. um, by William Slater how come William Slater's films aren't being adapted into movies I don't know he did Interstellar Pig you ever read Interstellar <laughs> I've Pig I've heard of Interstellar okay, Pig I've never yeah. seen it but I think that's his most famous book okay um, uh, but uh yeah, d- dealing with causality in like a storytelling way is going to be really hard because it takes a lot of cognitive power just to explain it. You know what? You know it's what gonna, actually... You're going to have to stop the movie and kind of give a lecture as to the way uh, causality operates. You know what's a you know what's a bad mm. movie but does have a really great take on causality? Mm. The Guy Pierce version of the Time Machine. It's not a very good movie. Oh, it's a yeah. bad movie. It's it, I don't think it's a good. There, there's interesting elements like mm. Orlando Jones is in it. He's actually really good, mm. and I like the design of the time machine. It looks really made of glass, and it's all futuristic. It's really cool. But yeah. um, <clears throat> the premise of that one, in particular, is the scientist who invents the time machine. His wife is killed, and he invents the time machine to go back in time and save her. Okay. 
but he can't do it. Every single time he goes back in time, he can't save her. Uh-huh. And he decides to go into the future to figure out why. Surely, I invented time travel. In 200 years, this will be perfected, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll just go into the future and ask around. And he does, and it turns out the future is fucked. <laughs> and um, when he finally gets an answer, the answer is perfect. Mm-hmm. The answer is, is elegant. The answer is this. You can't go back in time and save your wife because if you went back in time and saved your wife, you couldn't invent time travel to go back in time and save your wife. Mm-hmm. So time won't let you do that. <laughs> Simple. Uh-huh. I buy it. I like it. It's 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 a clever like sort of like well, twist, and it, it's all you know. A lot of people think about inventing time travel in order to change the timeline, and if you can't, was there any point to it? Good question. I don't know. Here, here's here's my question. If you're going back in time and saving your wife from dying, yeah. When you go back in time, you're fr- you're like further back in the past, right? Yeah. So the future hasn't happened again. Yeah. All you have is memories of that. Yeah. So nothing exists now except your memory of that timeline, and you can change whatever the hell you like. Time travel because isn't it's a not thing. real anymore. Here's the deal. <laughs> you, know, you know what? You know what is the one, uh-huh. the one time travel story hmm. that I buy? Like because yeah. like is, there's all of them that oh, are fun. Is, but it, like, is it yesterday's Enterprise? No, I don't uh, remember that one. It's the one where the the Enterprise C comes through a rift in time and uh, in, into the future next to the Enterprise D, and everything changes immediately, and they're still at war. And, no. the, and the Enterprise D is all at war, and Tasha Yar is alive again, and it no. turns out that they have to send Tasha Yar back in, like, the old Enterprise back into the past to reset the timeline, because they figure out something's really amiss here. No, I don't remember that. And either. everything resets, and everything's kind of hunky-dory, but now Tasha Yar's in the past, and that's how we got Sela, her half-Romulan daughter. No, I don't know. You remember any of that? No, vaguely. Oh, it's this Star Trek stuff. <laughs> Actually, deal with causality in, in a cleverish way in that the, one. The, this has nothing to do with causality, which is why I buy it. The mm. one that I buy is Slaughterhouse Five. Oh, there, where he's just sort of experiencing time out of order. The idea is this: we experience time in a linear fashion because that's mm. the way our brains work. Yeah. What if our brains didn't work that way? Hmm. What if our entire and you can't go past when you die. You can't go earlier than when you were born. All right. You can just experience any of it at any time. Mm. Can't change it. You can experience it. No. That I buy. Uh-huh. Because that is a matter of perspective. That's about shifting well, perspective. I, the I, idea it's still crazy and weird, yeah. but like I can wrap my head around that. The idea that time is this sort of universal force outside of ourselves is uh, not a thing. Probably uh, not. Ta- yeah. Time is a concept. It's just yeah. a way we've been able to measure and as we experience change. Well, it's a dimension. It's like depth mm. and mm. length and space. Yeah, and, time is just yeah. sort of the, the way the way we measure things. And yeah, this idea of traveling through time is just this fun sci-fi concept. Yeah. Um, can you do it? I don't think so. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, no one, maybe, no one, maybe, so far, no one has yeah. that we know of, or no one mm. has gone back in time to tell us that they have. I, they might have better things to do, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't I, know. In the movie Time Cop, they said you can't go to the future because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but if you Which go back fair. in the past, the future hasn't happened yet. So how can you come back? Yeah. <laughs> that bugged me when I first saw it. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I'm like 12 when I saw mm-hmm. that. I'm like, wait a minute. It doesn't work. Uh, isn't one of the X-Men has a superpower where they can only travel backward in time? Oh, like like he came from the distant future and he can't go back because his only superpower is that he can go back in time and usually only goes back like a minute so he can like prevent his teammates from being killed I th- or something. I, I, oh, I think I think they messed with that a little bit in X Men: Days of Future Past, but I yeah. don't think that's actually in the comics, so I'm not as familiar mm-hmm. with it. 
No, I, I know there's like, yeah, like this mm. dystopian X-Men character with a cannon gun mm-hmm. who like came back in time. I forgot Bishop. That he, Bishop, that, that was but it. But that wasn't a, time travel wasn't a superpower. He just went back in time with Oh, I, th- I thought his superpower was that he could tra- no, only he, travel backward in His time. superpower was that he can absorb energy and shoot it out at you. Which in a universe where people are constantly shooting energy at you, then it's yeah, that's pretty really practical, handy. actually. Yeah, in reality, not so much a thing. But anyway, <clears throat> anyway, we should move on. <laughs> was, right, this is some, we we're sci-fi nerds. Of, we got off on a tangent. On a tangent. Here's a here's a letter from Blake. <laughs> Hello, Blake. Hi, Blake. Uh, hey guys, big fan from the UK. Hello, UK. Hello. Uh, I discovered your existence about six months ago and have been listening to the whole range of your podcasts in random order. Just going back and forth with uh, with you guys has been a great, and you have made my drive to work so much more enjoyable. Thank you. That means a lot to us. We are we strive to be t- drive time champions. <laughs> uh, Annoyingly, I can no longer remember how I stumbled upon your podcast. Second annoying thing, I also listen to your podcasts in bed, and I'm constantly falling asleep and waking up having missed chunks. Don't worry, it's me being tired, not you two making me fall asleep. It's okay. Even if we're speaking you to sleep it's and helping okay. you rest, that's that's a fine that's way to fine. use our voices. But thank you so much. It means a lot uh, to us. I mean, I... I started to feel a bit guilty listening to all your free content that I've become a Patreon subscriber. Oh, oh bless you. Um, so just so I can listen to more. Again, I'm listening to all the exclusive stuff in completely random order, except for the All Our Yesterdays podcast. Hmm. My question. I'm a teacher of English and media studies, and my job is fairly straightforward, 9 to 4. I'm guessing your days are not the standard 9 to 5. What is the average day, week, or month like for you guys? Uh, And and when are you going to do Nowhere Man on Cancel Too Soon? Uh, All the best, Blake. To answer your question, we we Mm. both love Nowhere Man, and I don't know why we haven't done it yet. We should probably do it for like our 200th episode or something. No, wait, we promised we'd do Briscoe County. That's right. We'll get to Nowhere Man. We get to yeah. Nowhere Man is one of the bigger uh, shows we haven't uh, done yet. To answer your question, um, oh, I, I got my first job when I was 16 years old, and it was at the Criterion Movie Theater, a sixplex on Santa Monica, California. I don't think that was the question. No, but this goes to uh, this goes to the insidious nature of working at movie theaters. You never get out. You never ever get out of the movie theater business. Um, f- f- the manager who hired me when I was 16 ended up managing a movie theater in the landmark chain like 20 years later. Like, that's just what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, as such, I still work in a movie theater, which yeah. means my since movie theaters are operating uh, at peak efficiency when you're off, uh, I'm working really hard on Friday nights. So my weekends have been taken up. For as long as I can remember, it's a Fr- source of, Fr- it's of quite a lot of stress. Friday and Saturday night, well, a, a lot of sleep deprivation, especially yeah. when you have a child and a wife, and you're trying to be awake for them, and it's difficult. I remember um, when Henry was very, very young, and yeah. he was you know, a little baby, and you had to be up all the time. Mm-hmm. You were in a daze for like a year, year and a half. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah but, I was. I felt really bad about it. <laughs> like, yeah, thank goodness for all that methamphetamine. I was like, you want to take a nap on my couch? You can. And, and and my answer was yes, I do, but I can't. I gotta go. I gotta be somewhere. <laughs> So my average week is, uh, you know, I, I try to get as much recording, watching, and, uh, you know, what little writing I'm still doing uh, done during the day, and then I go to work at night, yeah. and that's been just sort of the, the way of it on my average day. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I, I long for a 9 to 5. I'd love, for, <laughs> I'd love to have a 9 to 5 job, but I would yeah, love to be able it to hasn't do, happened yet. I would love to be able to do less. We were just like, we're doing a lot, and I'm like, it's the only way I make money. I don't mm. have a day job. It's not for like we're trying in some cases. You know, some, yeah, some weeks I try harder than others, but mostly I work freelance. Yeah, you're actually freelancing for a living and, yeah. the, and this as well. Um, well, and I consider this part mm. of that. You know, it isn't like a yeah. corporation hiring me. Um, so uh, a typical day, uh, I get up around 7 or 8, mm-hmm. uh, make coffee, 
Uh, drink coffee, make more coffee. Drink more coffee, yeah. Um, uh, go to work. Um, answer emails, send out pitches, write, 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 you know, edit, 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 edit. Uh, usually, in a typical, like, I'd say about th- three or four days out of a week, Whitney and I record. Mm-hmm. And usually we try to do it in the middle of the day, so we'll that carves out a couple of hours in the middle of the day. Sometimes we have to do it in the late evening, but I'll mm-hmm. get to that. Um... Often I have to go to screenings, so there's commuting to that, going to the screening, coming back from the screening, big chunk of the day gone, got to write, 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 write. Oh, yeah, I have a family. <laughs> so at this point, I try to like make time for them, and I feel really guilty about how much work I have to do. Then I got to watch more stuff with them or not, if, I, if necessary. And then um, typically they go to bed, and I stay up for another five hours while I watch stuff, write stuff, or record with Whitney, and then I'm in bed by around two or three, and then I wake up at seven, and there's there's my day. It's it's as busy as it sounds. Yeah, it's, uh, we, it's we, not... we put out we put out a lot of content and, yeah. and we work very hard. And we but we like doing it and we devote ourselves to it in a I, way that we feel is is necessary. If I was if I was happy doing something else, I would do something else mm. because I'd be happy doing something else. Yeah. But this is what I want to do. It, it sucks that the industry is at a point now where it's like there's almost no full time work doing what we do. There's yeah, not a lot of job yeah. security. That sucks. And there it and, used to be possible, but there's a big uh, big so controversy right now about a new law that was just passed Ugh. about sort of limiting the amount of work uh, one single outlet was allowed to give each of its writers, uh-huh. which was meant to save the writer's work, but is actually preventing the writers from working. Because the people who wrote because that bill didn't understand how the industry How works. the industry works and how much people need to contribute in order to make ends meet, and it's yeah. really just kind it's of... Not like, it's not like that many articles, yeah. the, the limited, the number of articles that we're limited to can actually like put food on your table. No. It can't. It can't. Um... Yeah, so when uh, outlets moved online and stopped hiring staff writers, that was one gigantic Mm -hmm. blow, and now this new law is pretty much killing freelancing. Mm -hmm. So if you have a favorite author, try to follow them closely, because they're going to be all over the place now. And seriously contribute to their Patreon or whatever. And if they have have a Patreon. If you you want to keep them going, Mm -hmm. unless they're really successful, like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't... Well, they think Ben Mankiewicz needs it. I think current classic movies is treating him pretty well. But for all yeah, I know, some, they do. I don't know. Like, well, some critics do have yeah. have sort of like the the regular. They are staff writers, or yeah. they have like a TV job, or some such thing. Yeah, and good for them. They have yeah. they have the jobs we all want. Yeah, there's not that the, many. The problem of them is, left. there's only like five of them in all of Los Angeles, and I admire all the people who have those jobs. Yeah, they all you know, deserve it. Justin Chang is the staff writer at the LA Times. Justin Chang is awesome. Justin Chang is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I do not yeah. begrudge his success. No, 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 no. He, he deserves yeah. that job. Yeah, but yeah, like. I, yeah. Yeah. Gray Drake is the Fan. industry champion. She's Ms. Movie Phone, and she's one of the champion interviewers in the world. And, she and deserves that job. She's she deserves amazing. that job because she's great at it. Yeah, but if she ever left, there'd be like 200 people try- fighting over that one job yeah, yeah. because it's a good yeah. gig. So mm. um, anyway, it's hard, but we love doing it. We don't know how to do anything else, really. So. <laughs> this is what we've become good at. Yeah, We're not, I try not to complain too much, but oftentimes yeah. I'm a little stressed out and, and I don't get enough sleep. Yeah, 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 and I, I, I would freelance if it you know paid my son's tuition, but I do have yeah. to have in my night job, and yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 rough and caffeine helps. I'm def- <laughs> definitely a caffeine addict at this point. I realized a couple of years ago, wait, I'm not just I don't just like caffeine, like I need caffeine. Yeah. Like I need a cup of tea in the morning just to feel normal again. Well, when you're not getting enough sleep routinely, that's that's yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. Gotta... And, and I'm and I'm unhealthy a lot as a result because no, I'm not getting sleep. Not getting enough sleep is one of the and, worst and things and you and can I'm do. I'm depressed a lot because I'm not getting enough sleep. Yeah. I, I understand that my fatigue is leading to just I'm... foul moods a lot. Whitney is actually yeah. taking a vacation this year. Like he's gonna be gone. For like the week of Christmas, mm-hmm. so we're gonna work. So which means we have to work double this week. <laughs> so I have to record a lot. Um, but next week will be a little light on content, just because we're we, Whitney's taking a well-deserved mm. week off. Gives me a little time off as well, mm. uh, and hopefully we can catch up on our sleep a little bit because yeah, I think I think you deserve it. I, I would just eight hours. That's all we want. <laughs> just eight hours. Measly eight hours. Measly eight hours all in a row. Yeah. All right. Okay, six. Six hours. I'll take six. <laughs> All right, let's do more, one more than three and a half, please. Uh, here's a letter from Cameron. Uh, hello, Cameron. Hello, dearest Bibbs and Whitney. I was listening to one of your older episodes back on the Schmoes No Network where you were discussing some of your gateway films oh, yeah. uh, when getting into classic cinema. For me, Buster Keaton and Clyde Bruckman's The General was my introduction to silent film, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. It's a good one to start with. Great one. A, lot of, a lot of good action really good in after this, a friend and I sat down for a couple days and crushed pizzas. And, I love it, crushed pizzas. That's a good way to say it. And watched about four or five films each from Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Uh, I was really surprised to see how unique and different from each other these two filmmakers were because they generally tend to get looped in with one another. This yeah. is true. Uh, they're contemporaries, so yeah, it's understandable. Mm. Uh, anyway, my question is a bit of an evil one. Ooh. You have to pick. Oh. Either Keaton or Chaplin. And whoever you don't pick has their filmography wiped from history. Whose mo- I love these questions. Yeah. Whose movies do you keep? I'm asking because I couldn't come up with an answer myself. Mm. P.S. You've mentioned a few times how Canopy is free with a library card. I'd also like to point out that it's free for most college students as well. Oh, that's great. If they just signed up through their university's library. Oh. Oh, which is usually free for them anyway. Canopy was how I started looking for classics in college, so I'm particularly fond of it. Thanks, Cameron. Yeah, that's for, really good to know. First of all, uh, Canopy, Canopy, Canopy. Uh, it is uh, an invaluable film resource, and it is free. All right. Uh, before we mm. before we answer this question this is this is one of the great this or that questions if you're a film critic or a film fan because keaton and chaplin were far from the only silent comedians but they were two of the biggest Mm. and they're the two whose films have have endured mostly have endured like some harold lloyd films have endured Mm. a little bit safety last is a classic and it's really got a great climax and you should totally see it um but Keaton and Chaplin, they were prolific. Their films were very successful. Uh, and they mostly still hold up really, 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 really great. Um, the differences between the two filmmakers are pretty clear once you watch a few of them. Mm. They're both brilliant physical comedians, but Chaplin was maudlin. Chaplin, uh, well, saccharin, I would say. Yeah, he uh, sent- really wanted to push your sentimentality. Um, like, he was um, really wanted to make you cry while you laughed. That mm-hmm. was really important to him to really get, give you the full gamut of the human, like, experience. Mm-hmm. Keaton was more interested in sort of the the intellectual idea of cinema and what mm. could be done and how could we experiment with yeah. it and how could we completely subvert our audience's expectations mm. than he was necessarily in story although he told a lot of great stories as well mm. in a general way that gives you <laughs> the general way oh. in a general way mm. in, a, in our hospitality mm. way mm. that gives you a general idea if you're not super familiar with both mm. of them by all means seek them out when it comes to mm. the decision a mm. decision is easy mm. I pick Keaton uh, yeah um <laughs> Okay, look, City Lights, yeah. Gold Rush, yeah. Great Dictator. Great movies. Throw them in the bin. 
There's a discussion. There, uh, Bernardo, Bernardo Bertolucci made a film called The Dreamers uh, about uh, these young cineasts in the 1960s, just sort of watching movies and having threesomes and uh, yeah. all this weird sex stuff. And it, it's an okay movie. Older guys like The Dreamers because <laughs> there's a lot of young nubile flesh on display for the yeah. most part. Gross. But uh, <laughs> there's a discussion between uh, two French uh, cineasts and one American cineast. And the French cineasts are choosing Chaplin, and the American is choosing Keaton. Interesting. Uh, and I think it's because, and I think uh, Chaplin is is huge in Europe and is like really highly considered in sort of the the Cahier du Cinema crowd mm-hmm. uh, because of that sort of maudlin quality. He's able to sort of push a lot of physical comedy, but also really sort of tug at your heartstrings. Yeah. And that sort of he has a lot of mainstream appeal, but there's this kind of arty twinge to his work because he's actually doing a lot in terms of his physicality yeah. um, I, I forgot which film it's in where he's um, uh, key, uh, Chaplin is roller skating like right next to a big precipice like on, on a building that's oh, under, under construction is that modern time? No. Hold I don't on. think it's I'm modern a, times I, I, but uh, maybe it's the okay, but there's a on. scene where he almost falls and if you see how that film was actually shot he's not skating up next to a precipice it's modern times it's modern times yeah. uh, in modern times yeah th- there's actually if you look at the way that film that scene was shot it's forced perspective yeah all of the stuff that's really far away is actually really close to the camera yeah um, it's a masterful masterful it's, piece yeah, of filmmaking and it's a really wonderful, no, no, wonderful shot and I think uh, there's a certain kind of whimsy mixed within that technicality that I think a European audience is, is responding to yeah uh, it, a line of dialogue in the dreamers is but Keaton is funny <laughs> Keaton is f- <laughs> Keaton is funny when he's not doing anything he's just sitting there and you're laughing at Buster Keaton yeah because he's funny <laughs> He's an incredibly Cha- thoughtful Chaplin, Chaplin kind of en- engrosses you a little bit, but he he doesn't always make me laugh out loud. No, Chaplin, Chaplin will like let the comedy mm. die out for a while while he gives you drama. Then it'll be a brilliant comedic set piece. Yeah. Buster Keaton was constantly pushing the comedy. It's like the difference between a Disney cartoon from the 40s and a Looney Tune. Yeah. yeah. Buster Keaton is the Looney Tune. He's it's it's <laughs> full of ideas, it's yeah. full of manic energy a lot of the time. Mm. Um, he's got such a brilliant persona, they call him mm. old stone face, where he just doesn't seem to react to anything, but that lets mm. you project anything you want onto that. It's <laughs> really know, brilliant. He always looks so weary, and that adds yeah. to the... Co- no, no matter what scenario he's in, no matter how elated he is, he's or he's angry, he's like, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm happy. <laughs> um, I, I, I've seen... I mean, I haven't seen every Chaplin film, and I haven't seen every Keaton film, especially their shorts, because mm. they did a million of them. Um, but I would prefer a Keaton film over a Chaplin film pretty much every time. Yeah. And that's, yeah. That, that's no slight against Chaplin. Chaplin mm. made brilliant motion pictures. Quite a few. Mm. But Keaton's so damn funny. <laughs> and on top of it, you just you look at the innovation he was trying to do and the, the daredevil mechanics of what he was pulling mm. off. Yeah, Chaplin faked the roller skating thing. Good. It was dangerous. <laughs> you know what Buster Keaton didn't fake? A house literally falling on him. <laughs> There's a really famous uh, shot in Buster Keaton's filmography where... Uh, the front frame of a house fall, it falls while he's standing in front of the house, uh-huh. and Keaton had, of course, you know, measured it out exactly to be standing right in, in just the right spot when a window would fall around him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 
shockingly it's dangerous. Like if if he was a foot to the right, he would have died. If he was, uh-huh. yeah. if he was a few inches to the right, he would have died. When he was making the general, which we've talked about mm. on on our show before, um, like there's a bit where he's just on a train. The train is moving forward, and he's he's riding on the cow catcher on the front. Mm. And there's a big log in front of the train, and the gag is he takes a log he was carrying, throws it onto one side of that log, and mm. that log flips harmlessly over to the side before the train hits it. If he missed, he would have died. <laughs> yep. I gotta give him credit for that. <laughs> like, you just gotta give him some bonus points. Like, <laughs> oh my God. But listen, anyone who chooses Chaplin, I get it. Mm. I totally do. Chaplin is a genius as well. But Winnie and I are clearly yeah. Buster Keaton fans. And we've had this question before and have thought about it. Oh, we've and thought like, about this before. It's Keaton. Um, uh, if, and if you're looking for just pure comedy from the silent era... Laurel and Hardy, man. They, I mean, people know Laurel and Hardy sort of as caricatures, but I don't know a lot of people who have like gone back and watched old Laurel and Hardy yeah. shorts. They're not. They're not uh, quite as alive. They're not quite as alive. They're in, in the pop culture. They're they're clearly doing everything they can to sort of wring comedy out of like sort of more intimate scenarios. They're clearly working with smaller budgets than yeah. the bigger features of Chaplin and Keaton and, and even Harold Lloyd. Um, Everything happens exactly the way you think it's going to happen, and you're astonished at how well they do it. Uh-huh. Their comedy is sublime. Yeah, and if you and if you want a good primer on them, there's right. actually a really wonderful movie came out a couple of years ago that nobody saw, but was great mm-hmm. called Stan and Ollie. Yeah, uh, starring um, John C. Riley and Steve Coogan, mm-hmm. and um, it, they recreate a lot of the comedy routines, and they get away with it. Sometimes that can be boring because oh, mm. I've seen that comedy routine before, but they make it work, and it's just really heartbreaking and sweet and funny, and mm. a great motion picture. And you'll have this like affection for them that you might not have had if you're just getting introduced to their work and just saying, "Oh, they're funny." Mm. That's a really, really great movie. I put it on my list of the best biopics of the decade. For the oh, rap. nice. Okay. It was number 10, but it's, still. It's one I've been meaning to get to. Yeah. I cried like three times. Aww. Okay. I think we'll have one more. All right, here's one more. And this comes from... Uh, now, keep in mind, I'm going to read however you sign off the letter, not whatever's in the subject line, because just to protect your identity, you yeah, may not want that you, read about. That's how you want to be credited. That's how you want to be addressed. Yeah. So here's a letter from Dastardly Custard. <laughs> Hello. What's wrong with the custard? <laughs> what did the custard no, do? Well, well, I mean, why, why did the custard family name their son or daughter dastardly? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Uh, anyway, dear, dear gentlemen, I know there are pl- there's plenty of discussion about there about the nature of spoilers oh, and the yeah. meaning of, quote, spoiler culture. But I feel there is a closely related yet very different phenomenon that is maybe not often acknowledged or explored, namely the the delight people take in retelling stories Mm -hmm. in some of your own podcasts you often do a fair bit of recapping and summarizing which i don't hold against you in fact i enjoy it another example closer to home my own father he is sadly verbally and emotionally repressed withholding and a depressive kind of person someone who rarely speaks with much open enthusiasm or passion on any topic there are people like this indeed Um, however i've noticed that sometimes when recounting the plot of a movie he takes a pure complicated (laughs) pleasure in communicating and speaking and can some sometimes be downright enthusiastic in general, it seems people often get a rush from recounting stories and plot lines. Perhaps we might call this recap culture. Oh. I was wondering if you have any observations, stories, or philosophical thoughts to share on this topic. Thanks, and keep up the excellent work. Dastardly Custard. Uh, that's actually mm. a, kind of a big can of worms from Hoodism yeah. for a lot of reasons. Um, in terms of criticism, uh, this is something actually, it's advice I've given and advice I've received is, you actually don't need to spend a lot of time recapping the plot in a written review. Yeah. And it's not the first thing you need to do either. In fact, if you go to something like the New Yorker, where have these, they are actually able to give like extended reviews as compared to most newspapers, like like thousands and thousands of words. 
you'll notice they don't get to the plot until like maybe the third paragraph. Yeah. And they're such expert writers that they can actually lead you into that. I a lot of editors, uh, when you're dealing with a, a smaller form, say get to it that started the second paragraph there's like a sort of a structure you should probably stick to so mm-hmm. it looks and feels more like a review because people need that information to put your review into context sooner yeah i've gotten into trouble because i like to sort of put the film into a lot of context before i get into the film itself right um from, from you in fact you used yeah. to edit my work it's like i hey, get to this a little sooner well my, my thing is this mm-hmm. um structure when it comes to writing a written review is different mm-hmm. than if you're doing a podcast or if you're doing it in person. Yeah. Um, I my, philo- my philosophy and my advice, mm-hmm. and there's different takes on this, and mine is not worse or better than anyone else's, mm-hmm. I think. Um, make an interesting point and then get to mm-hmm. the, the, the recap. Yeah. Um, and because you don't, because just a recap, you're going to want to skim on that. Yeah. Like, if you've seen the trailer, you probably know everything you need to know mm-hmm. about the gist of the plot. Yeah. So that is there for whoever needs it, but what I like to do is I like to make an interesting point, an observation, and then use the recap to get back to it. Yeah. So that it feels like there's a bit of a, a through line and a structure. Um, recaps, when you're writing, are actually mm. kind of boring, <laughs> unless uh. you have something like, unless through your recap you can include some some attitude. Uh-huh. Like, here's how I feel about the movie. Is it stupid or ironic mm. or uh, b- b- lovely, even? Mm. Like, you can actually, like, incorporate that into the way you recap something. Yeah. Um, but uh, the actual act of recapping uh, a movie, there actually used to be I, and I've I've heard about this from various film professors. Um, an interesting oral tradition of cinema, mm. where there were a lot of movies that were unavailable in various countries because they were forbidden, they were mm. banned, and people would see the movie mm. and recap it for people, like at parties, and it was like a scene as an act of political rebellion. <laughs> and they would tell them everything that happened. In some cases, they would try to memorize it. Mm. Um, so that had enormous value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that we share and retell a story tells you a lot about mm-hmm. how we feel about it and how that story impacts us. And if you can reduce a story not just to its plot elements, but also to how it means and how it feels, mm-hmm. then you're cutting to mm-hmm. the quick. That is an act of criticism, I feel. I, uh, I forgot who said this. It was somebody, it was a screenwriter. Um, they said that uh, when, when pitching, when, if, you're like, if you're a professional screenwriter, you're going to be pitching ideas for scripts a lot. And when it comes to recapping the story, when you're pitching, it's okay to tell the story completely out of order, like completely wildly out of order. You can mm. say this is how the edit's going to end and here's how we get to the ending and yeah. there's these things in the middle because when you're recounting a film to a friend and you're really excited about it, that's kind of how you talk about it. Yeah. You don't say at first this happens, then this happens because you're not actually writing the screenplay in front of somebody. Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so when it comes to recapping or uh, describing the plot of a movie, I think it is completely acceptable, even in a professionally written review, to skip around a lot and mention plot points mm. later on that perhaps were pertinent to things you well, mentioned earlier. Well, and that's the other thing. Some people, when they just get mm. started, they think they have to tell you everything. You don't. Yeah. Get, get them to the end of the first act. Mm. Allude to stuff in the second act. Be specific where you need to be, I, and be yeah. vague about the end. I remember it's reading really a, a couple essays from uh, like some geek type websites about how oh, film reviewers—they're doing it all wrong. They're not mentioning the plot until late on, and then they're only doing it like in a sentence or two, and they're kind of missing the point that the plot is not going to be your. 
full impression of what a movie is. Yeah. In fact, the plot is almost the least important thing in a lot of cases. Mm. Uh, it might be a character or a tone or a story beat or like a, a thrill, the emotions you felt while you were watching it. Those are all more important than the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of the actual plot. The plot is only there to hold up the movie. I, I have a general philosophy mm. when I write my reviews. Mm. Um, this may or may not be the case when I say my reviews like okay. on a podcast, but when I write, mm. if I don't mention it, it's fine. Mm. If I do mention it, we need to talk about it. Yeah. Sometimes it's because it's so damn good. But mm. often it's like, I'm not going to get into a huge amount of the plot unless the plot doesn't work. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to give you the gist of it. I'm going to tell you the basics so that you know what you're getting into. Mm. And then I'm going to talk about the impact it has and what it means and how it achieves that meaning. Mm. And what, if it makes you feel something it's not supposed to or something negative, why does it make you feel that way? That's more important than getting through the plot. The other thing you talked about in the email, though, was um, spoiler culture. Hmm. And oh, the idea of retelling a story. And I think that's something that's really important. I think it's something we don't talk about enough when we talk about spoiler culture. Mm. It sucks to have like the ending of a movie ruined for you, especially if it's a twist or something. That yeah, sucks. That's a genuine that. spoiler by, yeah. by any measure. But we've started to equate knowing anything about a movie with having it spoiled. And I don't think yeah. that's the case. I don't think that's the same thing as ruining a movie. My philosophy is this if you know what happens in a movie, and then the movie is ruined, mm -hmm. that was never a good movie. <laughs> yeah. If a movie only works because you were surprised by it, that's it, not going to linger. That's it, just a, that's a just good, surprising. A good surprise is fine. But yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's, it's great. It's, um, it's good storytelling, usually. But, like, you don't want, like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. That's so exciting. Mm. So you're saying that it, the next time you see it, it will be bullshit? Hmm. No, that that's not the case. Like I know everyone knows now that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. That doesn't ruin the original Star Wars. Mm. That doesn't. Like well, it's, it, it's fine. So, it still some works. Of, some of the things they said in the movie make sense after well, you recon don't make sense as much if, if you recontextualize it. But Star Wars never else, made yeah. a lot of sense, and we need to accept that. Uh, but like that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a good that's a, that's an example. Yeah. But like think about like a murder mystery movie you've seen multiple times. Like you you know who the killer was in Seven. Hmm. Can you never watch Seven again? Can you never watch Scream again? No, mm. you can totally do that again, and you can just mm. see it from different angles in the future, you know? And yeah. So I think we're a little too hung up on spoilers, and I like the idea of examining the culture of recaps and the thought process behind recaps mm. as part of that, because I think it's actually an interesting point, and not a lot of people talk mm. about that outside of film critics who usually mm. complain that they have to spend too much time writing... The plot. The plot, yeah. Writing like, uh, the plot. Um, these two paragraphs are always uh, death. A lot of uh, a lot of critics are very cognizant of spoilers. Some are uh, maybe a little less. I remember, I think it was Peter de Bruges in Variety. I uh, wrote a review of Star Wars: The Last Jedi, oh, which he revealed, um, and he revealed the Yoda cameo. Yeah, which at which the time was, was no uh, one knew about. Yeah, because they hadn't released that to the public. It was yeah, a bit there of were no photos. We now, didn't even know Frank Oz he, was in it. He was so just unimpressed by this film that the appearance of Yoda didn't really register as something special to him. Yeah, so he just sort of mentioned it flipply and offhand, not really kind of aware that that might be a spoiler for someone else. Mm -hmm. And he got a, got under into a lot of hot water for that. Admittedly, I, I think that was Peter de Bruges, but I'm. I I could think be wrong. that's the sort of well, whoever it was. That's hmm. the sort of thing an editor really should catch. Yeah, I sometimes wonder how many of these publications actually have hands-on editors, and if so, they need more. Well, uh, they need more. The way the industry used to be, it's, it's before you got to write a review and have your stuff published in a review, you used to, to spend several years as a proofreader. Yeah, and there were a lot of editors and proofreaders working at the home office, taking in other people's work, and then you, after doing that for a while, then you got to be a film reviewer. Yeah. 
Bring those people back. <laughs> we need because we, we need them. Need Everybody's them. self-editing now. And we need, as we as need a terrible f- typist, I would appreciate. Well, it's that. not even just typists. Yeah. Like you look at like some of the things that like this article is irresponsible. This yeah. article is based on a faulty premise. Yeah. This headline misrepresents the article. Yeah. We're going to get lambasted on social media because yeah. this it's saying we're doing something stupid when actually we're not. Yeah. Or this article is stupid and should never have been made. Yeah. Someone posted onto our Facebook page. We have a critically acclaimed cancel yeah. too soon Facebook page. Uh, a link that was, I'm trying to remember the exact title of the article, but it was something like, um, Nicholas Cage starred in a riff on It's a Wonderful Life that you've never heard of. Oh. It's Family Man. It made over yeah. $100 million That's and spawned a, a subgenre. <laughs> it's not obscure. I understand a lot of young people might not be super familiar with it, mm. but there's a big difference between... I'm telling you about this super obscure thing that nobody's heard of, mm. and I'm telling you about a movie that was a major hit when it came out, and everyone had heard of, mm. and some young people haven't seen yet. Yeah, That's not the way to frame that. If you want to talk about how, hey, we need to look at The Family Man as a, as a Christmas classic that doesn't get enough attention. I actually disagree. I don't like that movie that much, but you <laughs> can make that argument. Yeah, yeah. That would be a fair argument. And I would be like, cool, publish that. That's fair. But yeah. no, well, it's like it's. I found that title to just be the sort of thing. Like, how did this pass muster? Also, if I were an editor, I think this sort of let's rescue X film from the ash heap of time. I would like nix at least half of those. Well, if you, it depends. It depends on if the writer can make a good argument. I suppose. So, like, it, but yeah, it's not us to decide that. It's us to decide if the argument mm. is good enough that mm. it should think, go to press. Like Fangoria recently said, let's reconsider End of Days, and I said, no, let's not. Re- we don't need to think no, about End of Days. I at recently all. rewatched End of Days. There's a couple of crazy scenes in it, but mm. mostly that movie sucks. It's, it's not a good film. We don't need to think about everything you remember watching when you were a teenager. Not, right? everything it's is... not everything's nostalgia But bait. that being said, everyone's allowed to make the argument, mm. and if the argument doesn't come across, then that's yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That's that simple. Um, I, make, I make an argument for a lot of film. I recently, I was surprised at how popular this tweet was. I made a tweet mm. um, because I happened to be thinking about it. The mm. uh, Andrew Nichol movie, uh, In Time, Okay. Which came and went, like, it made, it made a little money, but nobody cared. Mm-hmm. And um, it stars, if you missed it, or forgot that it exists, it stars Justin Timberlake. And it's in a near, it, actually, they're kind of hazy about when it is, but presumably the nearest future. Mm-hmm. Where instead of using currency, we pay people in time. Like, you age until age 25. Well, they, they get time on, on their death clock. Everyone ages mm-hmm. normally until age 25. Mm-hmm. And then at the age 25, everyone gets a year. And you can trade, like, a few seconds for a cup of coffee. Mm. But you have to earn back money in order to keep living. And a lot of people, because of the way the economy works... And when your clock is up, you just die. Yeah, a lot of people wake up every day with 24 hours on their arm because they're living day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck. It's an interesting metaphor. The mechanics don't work at all. Don't make any sense. How did they pitch this? (laughs) Who in Congress (laughs) threw this out there? The idea is that the rich are going to live hundreds of years and and the poor are living day-to-day. Well, the millions. And there's a bit where... Justin Timberlake through machination plot point A mm. uh, ends up with millions of years and now he's really really rich and now it's him exploring this world of these mm. everyone looks 25 but some of them are hundreds of years old and I've, he gets really pissed mm. off about it and he goes on a time heist with Amanda Seyfried and they go around stealing time from rich people mm. and I run, and it turns out there's like an ultimate clock with billions of years on it I, somewhere I, I, and, there's yeah, a yeah. part in the movie where uh, and I've just tweeted this. There's a there's a movie starring Justin 
Timberlake called In Time, where time is literally currency, mm. and Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried steal time from rich people, and at one point he finds like a billion years in a closet mm. and says... That's some quality tag. <laughs> it's the dumbest shit. There's so many plays on words in that movie. They're hilarious. Like, I love that movie because it's so it, ridiculous oh. and it knows it's ridiculous, but it also is kind of a pretty good metaphor for the economy. Okay, and like, yeah. I was surprised at how many people like liked and reshared that. And it's like, I need to see that movie. All right. I guess that one's like rife for rediscovery because it's. It's fun and weird. It's a fun slick thing that nobody saw. Yeah, yeah it's it's fun. It's mm-hmm. weird. It deserves it deserves a small cult. I think people deserve to be able to say, "Yeah, I saw yeah. it in time." That movie's fun. I don't think. Well, I'm not sure about a cult, but more people can see it. That's small. Fun. Like we were small talking, group of people who are fans uh, to, to cite more Andrew Nichol films. Also, his film Simone. I think that's yeah. a, that's a really terrific film. We've talked about that one yeah, quite we a bit. Talked about that one. I think just last week. Um, yeah, in time was like. There's also a lot of missed opportunities in there. The idea that. The people who are poor and they're always out of time are constantly running. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked to have seen like a, some like production design that reflected that. Like mm. they're always in tracksuits or they always have really nice sneakers or something, and they're all like in, like have fit runners' physiques because <laughs> they're always running. Whereas the rich who don't have to worry about anything, like you cast a lot of overweight actors and people who are just sort of slow or slow, just slow moving people who are really out of shape. That makes sense. But they didn't do that. Like the, yeah. the Amanda Seyfried and, and Justin Timberlake are both thin and pretty. And that's, that's that. They just sort of cast these attractive people. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and you know, which is fine. It's, it's, an, movies, it's, it's but, an interesting flick. It doesn't quite work, but bless them. They, they swung yeah. for the fences on it. Yeah, um, yeah. All right. So that's it for the, for we've got mail this week. Thank you everybody for writing in. Uh, if you want to write in uh, yourselves or if you want to write in again, if we already read your letter mm-hmm. letters at critically acclaimed.net. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to answer your questions, respond to your prompts, explain things about the industry, mm. be criticized, whatever you want. Mm. This is your time. Um, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive content on there. Um, and uh, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we hope everyone has a great week, a great holiday or so forth. Uh, we're going to try to cram in as many podcasts as we can before Christmas. I don't know if we're going to get another letters episode in. We might take a week off of this, but mm-hmm. we'll see what we can do. We're, we're going to do as gonna, much as we yeah, can. Try to, get, try to fill this week and next week so you have at least something to listen to over the holiday. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're with family uh, and you're just spending time with them, that's fine. If you're with family and you don't want to spend time with them, I know that's also a thing, mm-hmm. and you want to hole up and listen to us, we're going to try to give you some things to we'll, sort of pass yeah. those hours as well. All right. So thank you, everybody. Once again, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>